Hello, and welcome back to In Person, brought to you by Bizabo. In case you and I haven't already met, I'm Rachel Rappaport, and in each episode of In Person, we explore the world's most daring events and the people who make them happen. Today, we're chatting with Kim Darling, the Vice President of HubSpot. Kim leads the global event team at Inbound, one of the most well-respected B2B events in the industry. Since 2014, Kim has grown the global events team from two to 20 plus people and grown inbound registrants from 7,500 to 26,000 and many more virtual attendees in 2020. Under Kim's leadership, ticket and sponsorship revenue have grown exponentially and the team launched a media branch of the inbound experience that has achieved up to 1 million views per week at its height while putting a spotlight on stories of company and personal growth. In this episode, Kim shares how HubSpot is planning and thinking about the hybrid future and what hybrid really means. We dive into budgeting and monetizing hybrid events and discuss the various and sometimes unexpected places to draw inspiration for creating immersive event experiences. Let's get to it. Here's Kim Darling and our host, Brandon Raffleson. Kim, welcome to In Person. Thanks for having me, Brandon. I'm extremely excited to chat with you again. We had the chance to speak back in 2020 at Almost In Person. Obviously, over here at Bizabo, we're huge fans of Inbound and the work that you and your team have done. And it's awesome to have you on the show. Now, before we dive into the meat and potatoes of our discussion, there's one question that I've been getting from a lot of our different listeners leading up to this episode, and that is, where on the earth did you find the adorable cockapoo and internet celebrity known as Jack Darling? I don't know if he's an internet celebrity, but he has his own Instagram account like I think every pet owner has. Yeah, Jack is my dog for everybody listening. Of course, I love him like crazy. He is currently in Ireland with my family where he has been during the pandemic. So he's a frequent flyer. He (laughs) lived in the States with me for five years and then went back and forward. But we love him to bits. He's crazy about birds. That's his thing. He tries to catch birds on a daily basis. And is he ever successful? Oh, yeah. It's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And I understand he's a frequent flyer. Has he achieved platinum status yet or still working on it? You know, that's one thing I wish the airlines would do is that they would give you points for your pets traveling. I'd happily pay for that. No problem. But no, he has not. But they do treat him very nicely on the plane, I have to say. (laughs) Delta, Aer Lingus, whatever airlines are out there, if you're listening, there is a, a brilliant idea here. Pet reward status. Love it. Okay, let's jump into the actual meat and potatoes, and that is, well, you and your work. You are the vice president and executive producer of Inbound at HubSpot. You've grown the Inbound team from two to more than 20 people and growing, and you've grown the registrants at the Inbound experience from 7,500 attendees in 2014 to over 26,000 in 2019, and many more virtual attendees at Inbound 2020. Among many other achievements. So could you walk us through your career journey and the steps that led you to where you are today as the vice president, executive producer? It's interesting because even now, I still don't fully think of myself as like a true event professional in a lot of ways. I think the skills that I've had from other jobs just really lend itself to aspects of project management, strategy, planning, experiential, sort of more consumer-focused ideation. And I really think with the way that HubSpot has embraced, you know, we have HEART at HubSpot, like a lot of other companies have different acronyms, and the R in HEART for HubSpot is remarkable. And that is one of the things that I've felt truly blessed and grateful, and I know that sounds really corny, but it's very true, is that HubSpot has always pushed and strived to do something that is out of the ordinary, that is different, that is differentiated, and really placed a lot of curiosity on our customers and what is resonating with people, what is resonating with audiences, what's the first step. And so to go back to the question, I've had a bunch of different roles in my career. I'd say the one right before HubSpot is I worked at LinkedIn, just another tech company. And I was the first employee there when they opened the Dublin office in Ireland back in 2010. Really, I had a marketing role there, but it was not by any means an event role. And I worked there. There was me and two salespeople on day one. And by the time I left in 2013, we had 300 and something employees in Dublin. And we'd opened nine different European countries. And 
I really worked on the market entry planning for those countries and those strategies for our talent solutions business, worked really closely with our global marketing leads in the States and California, and really was the person, the point person for all of that in Europe and started a marketing team from scratch and built that up. So that was really my first jump into making sense out of a lot of chaos and really not having a ton of resources and being really scrappy and trying to think outside the box. Like back in 2010, Facebook was like the hot thing. It was growing like crazy. It was like, how do we differentiate ourselves on LinkedIn? It's a professional network, not a social network. What does that mean? What is the value proposition? Not quite as cool. Instagram wasn't around back then, which is crazy. Twitter was around. We had a Twitter integration on LinkedIn back then. It was like the wild west of the social networks and we were all learning and all growing in the industry together. And prior to LinkedIn, I had been a consultant in Silicon Valley at the earlier part of my career. And I was actually based in Palo Alto and Twitter was next door to our office. And I do remember the day where they had Ashton Kutcher come and give <laughs> like a talk because he was one of the first, him and Demi Moore back in the day, one of the first like celebrities that really embraced Twitter. And I was like, what is this? It was so new. This is way back when. So I was just very excited to be at LinkedIn at that time, but not only for the industry and the innovation that was happening, but also the rapid pace of growth. And, you know, I was the second highest traveler in the company my second year at LinkedIn. And I had such an amazing learning experience. There were incredible professionals who I still reach out to and get to learn from to this day. And LinkedIn is also a phenomenal company. And I'm so grateful for that experience. And I think that that was the career break of my life. You know, it was the place where I was able to learn and grow and make mistakes and understand what this innovation is and have that curiosity to learn and to push the boundaries really. And to to not be afraid to try because, you know, there was nothing in this industry that had been done before. It really was borrowing and being inspired by other things. Yes. But like really charting your own course. So then when I moved to HubSpot, I was very just right place at the right time. I think I've just had a lot of luck, to be honest, where one of my former LinkedIn colleagues had left and had started working on a consulting basis with HubSpot in Dublin. HubSpot did a really smart thing when when we opened the office in Dublin. They sent a bunch of folks about between five to 10 people in varying rotations. Some were six months, some were 12, some were two years from our HQ in Cambridge, Massachusetts to Dublin to have like a transplant of the culture there. And it was so smart and it was so supportive. And I think even when we were at LinkedIn, like I look back on those early days where we were so alone, there was amazing support, but tools like Zoom didn't exist back then. So, you know, I knew the WebEx number off by heart because I dialed into it to talk to my colleagues in Mountain View every day. But when HubSpot did that, it was great. And I think I was within the first 20 or so employees at HubSpot in Dublin or so. And really when I was hired there, it was in a marketing role and it was originally meant to be for our partner reseller marketing channel. You know, I'm not really sure how much of that I actually did. (laughs) I worked on co-marketing campaigns with LinkedIn, with Twitter, with Eventbrite back in the day because I had such strong relationships with all of the Silicon Valley to Silicon Docklands in Dublin tech companies from my early LinkedIn experience, I just had a really strong network and I was able to leverage that to do those co-marketing campaigns that helped us on the lead gen side get really established in Europe from HubSpot's perspective. And one of the campaigns I did was called International Marketing Week. And it was essentially, I got asked by all of our reseller partners all the time, all over EMEA, can you have like Brian Halligan or HubSpot CEO or Dharmesh Shah, CTO co-founder, come and speak at like this little thing in this part of the world every other day. And, you know, one of the things that HubSpot is still to this day amazing about is having that feeling of almost like a small company, like you're connected to the founders if you're a reselling partner, you're connected if you're a customer, like, you know, they will take a lot of their time out of their day to talk to our end users and be available, but it just wasn't sustainable. I think one of the requests I got, which was amazing, but also crazy was could Brian go on a cruise around the Mediterranean for like an inbound marketing kind of event and I was like okay we need to find a way to get some scale into this and so we came up with a joint co-marketing campaign with Eventbrite at the time it was called Inbound Marketing Week and we created a 
website, a standalone week where all of our reselling partners and people who had no affiliation with HubSpot could apply to host an event during this one week. I believe it was in June. And we as HubSpot would host one in London for Europe and one in Boston because that's where we were headquartered. And we would essentially drive traffic to this website where all of the events all over the world, I think we ended up with just under 200 events in one week across those five days, were all listed on this one website. And our responsibility was to drive traffic. And then everybody had their own individual like registration and landing pages. And we sent them essentially an event in a box kind of kit, you know, how to run a great event, how to promote it, how to think about experiential moments, how to think about your social strategy. And it was really successful. I cannot remember all of the stats off the top of my head right now, but it was one of those things where I had needed creative support from our headquarters. Anybody that works for especially like a global company will know that wherever your company's headquarters, sometimes there's centralized services and our creative team was centralized in Cambridge. And I had an executive sponsor who was the VP of Brand and Buzz at the time. And she talked to me about this role on the inbound team. And I initially was like, no, no way. I just bought a house. I just got the dog. He was a puppy. And the house I bought, I'd ripped out every wall, ceiling, floor, done a massive renovation. <laughs> and I had lunch with a former colleague at LinkedIn who was the head of the Dublin operation. And we had been putting it off for months because both of our schedules kept getting misaligned. Her name is Sharon, and she is such a mentor and amazing friend in my professional life. I just am so grateful for those people that push you at the right moments in time in your career. I think you really need that network for that. So anyway, Sharon was like, what are you doing? You're crazy. This is an opportunity to specialize, get more senior, get known for something, get your arms around a strategic program, make it your own. And I was like, well, I'm not sure I want to go into events. <laughs> like Everything's going digital. Is this the right thing for my career? And I had done a little bit of event stuff at LinkedIn, but it wasn't my core. And she was like, go back and tell them what you want to make this role. Pitch them something exciting. See what they say and take it from there. Talk to them about the things that you would want to make this to make it interesting and exciting for your career, which I think was great advice because it wasn't about me being selfish, but like, what can I do for this business? And what can I do that's beyond the norm? And so I did that. And I remember them asking me, would I commit to five years? And I was like, no way. <laughs> Let's do two to three and see how it goes. And been in this role since 2014. So wow. <laughs> it's been going pretty good. And I've certainly made mistakes along the way. And I'm I'm grateful for those two, you know, because they were the real turning points in my career. That's so fascinating to hear. And it seems like, especially during that time at LinkedIn and the earlier days of HubSpot leading to where you are today, one of the through lines is kind of carving your own path. <laughs> Say you're involved with partner resellers, but then you end up instead like driving a lot of co-marketing campaigns or the International Marketing Week, finding a really creative solution to this, <laughs> this bottleneck that the organization was facing to pitching like, this is what I'm looking to do with the next step of my career, stepping into this role at Inbound and putting together that plan. It's extremely admirable and impressive. There's definitely a lot to unpack there. But one of the things I'd like to speak to is how you and your team kind of did the unthinkable again with Inbound in 2020 and that huge, massive pivot that you all underwent with the events. I mean, Inbound is this typically, as mentioned earlier, the huge in-person experience bringing in tens of thousands of marketing and sales and customer success professionals together. And in 2020, you and your team managed to create a pretty novel approach, providing multiple ways for attendees to participate through this like virtual venue setup to exploring a number of different virtual content formats, like audio only sessions. What were some of your biggest learnings from that particular experience? I kind of would put them into two buckets as learnings. Some of the stuff that I think we did that panned out and that worked out really well. And then there's the things that you're like, okay, we learned a lot there. You know, maybe it didn't hit the mark or it could be what would be better if on the first bucket, like what went really well. I think the one true thing that has served us on the inbound team really well throughout the years is the audience is always the priority. They are your hero. They are your North Star. They are your reason for doing this. And I think in general, in broad terms, in marketing, but in particular in events, we are often 
sort of sucked into the like the politics of things sometimes. What is it that we, the company, need to say? And it's not that that's not important. It absolutely is because at the end of the day, what is your company positioning? What are you selling or promoting? What is the difference you are making in the world? And that's great. But to think about that in a way that's not aligned with like what matters to your audience is where I often see people get derailed. Just a very honest example in event world, especially coming from an event that serves a company the way ours does, is people will say, but this person has to speak about this and here's the laundry list of things and here's what they need to get out. And you're like, A, is that the right thing for the audience? B, do they care? See, how is this engaging them? Are they going to receive this? Why is this important? How is this presented? And I think when we thought about that and we took a step back last year when COVID first hit, I think, first of all, we were extremely lucky that the whole world was from March through to like April time last year when things were really clear that like COVID was going to shut down everything and everyone was going to go in lockdown in terms of live events. Our event was scheduled for September. We were not one of those people that had to have an event plan pivot within like four to six weeks. My heart goes out to every professional that lived through that because that is extremely difficult. And like I salute everybody that did that and made it work. We had four months essentially from when we sort of made this decision to get everything done. And I think having that North Star of like, well, what is the right thing for the audience? Let's look at the landscape here. Like we're not putting on a bunch of webinars. That's not the point. When you think of what the point of an event strategy is, it's that fear of missing out that like everyone has to have a shared experience at one moment in time together and feeling connected. So how do you translate that level of excitement that you naturally get when human beings come together in the same place, in the same space around a shared goal or understanding or conversation? How do you replicate that online? How do you get emotional cues through? How do you make that interesting now that they live their life between their big screen, their little screen, and their medium screen? That was really, honestly, it sounds super simple, but that was where we went. And to be honest, at that time, I think there was a lot of companies that were on the precipice of having amazing technology, but it wasn't fully there yet. We looked around, we did a very light RFP, And we said, all right, we've got some good technology vendors that we're going to continue to work with, but we're going to build a custom platform at this time for ourselves. And we're also going to look at what content format works. So I was so proud of my team. One of the biggest things that worked was having debates about things where, again, it was back to that live component. Like, okay, what do you think? What's your point of view if you weren't part of this? And you looked at like the clubhouse revolution that happened last year. Like that was a lot of what was happening. Audio only sessions was people could take a break and go for a walk. That really worked and resonated with people. Having the ability to respond with emojis, which is a common language, the way people would respond on their phone, on text, or even on Slack was a really big part of the experiential component. So leaning into what already existed for people, how they were already consuming content, not trying to reinvent the wheel but doing it in a way that was all in the same place at the same time with a shared experience. And that also really meant that we had to get a lot of people there. So we ended up with 70,000 people registered for Inbound Online last year, which I'm extremely proud of. One of the early decisions we really wrestled with was actually pricing. You know, we saw everybody have to pivot immediately. And I think that's sort of like, okay, we're all doing these online events and we're going to make them free was the way the industry really went early on last year. And I remember having a conversation with Laura, who is, you know, director of programming and revenue on my team. And she said to me, this just feels like back when news sites were all going free and then they all kind of went out of business and weren't able to manage through that. Like whatever we do, we have to make the decision now for the long run. And I think that's one thing that event professionals have to be very conscious of is especially large events. When you create a large event, it is like turning a dragon in the best way possible. You have to take very deliberate, big swing steps that you know are going to pan out, which is very hard to understand the repercussions of those decisions down the line. But you have to think, one, two, five years ahead of time, no matter what the situation. And we did charge for tickets. We had a free type, but we had charged and it went really well. And we also added an in-platform upgrade option, which actually generated 20% of our ticket revenue last year. 
Oh, wow. And that's, I imagine, something that organizers typically couldn't offer at an in-person experience. You're like at the event and then a uh, second day, I decide I'm going to upgrade to whatever that new tier is. In this case, was that for access to on-demand content? It was access to, yes, on-demand and live content. There was a mixture of both at the event. So I think the big thing was that it was touchless. That was why it worked. Yes, they can do that in person at the event, but capacity allowing for breakout rooms and things like that. But it's so seamless in an online environment. People order everything from DoorDash on their phone to Uber to Spotify to Netflix to Amazon. These are frictionless consumer-grade experiences. And that was what we really took inspiration from as we started to build a platform to have our event in and the way that we wanted to do it. So like self-serve ticket transfers, touchless upgrades, you know, we've got some other functionality that I hope will be available in the future. Like, for example, when you have Instagram close friends, how would teams share their content across that in terms of building their agenda? That's a big request that we see. Spotify has the most amazing content recommendation engine. Like this is made for you. There's no reason why as event organizers, we have so much data that we're sitting on top of that we shouldn't be able to be much more thoughtful. Again, back to the audience being the hero in all of this, what's going to help them? What's going to decrease their friction with your experience was they all are logged in at the same time having that shared experience and that it's just a world-class consumer-grade experience for them. Looking towards inbound 2021, where are you pulling inspiration from? And are you able to share some of the ideas or experiences that you were thinking about producing after having already produced this fully virtual experience in 2020? Yeah, I think for 2021, you know, a lot of the US, for example, is having in-person events again. And that's great. I love to see it. It's amazing. It's just so freeing. But it's not the case everywhere. And there are different variants of COVID. There are different levels of vaccine adoption. There are different circumstances. There's different weather patterns. I think we all have to be honest about the fact that this landscape is going to continue to change as it pertains to live events through the end of this year in particular. Who knows about 2022? So in terms of this year, we are doing a digital first event. We will have a very small in-person component in Boston that the details are to be released still. But the digital experience, we're really building upon the success of last year and continuing to iterate. I think what's even more exciting is looking at 2022, to be honest, on the fully hybrid approach. And where are we drawing those inspirations from I think about this as like a more macro level. I think the events industry is obviously what I think about on a day-to-day basis, but I do think looking around at every part of our lives has been eaten by technology in the last 18 months. That digital revolution and transformation is incredible, and it's certainly not going away. I think of like movies, for example, you know, there's been so much buzz about Do studios do direct-to-consumer release over streaming, or do they bring in-theater back? Regardless of the COVID situation, the key question is, what is the consumer behavior that is going to be the norm as we go into 2022? And I think of that example on movies. I know, like, for example, Netflix has purchased a theater in LA, and I think of other consumer-driven industries Like I think it's Allure magazine and now has like an in-person pop-up like retail experience store in New York. Like I always looked at brands like Glossier is a really good example of this that sort of already was doing an experience that bridged the gap between an in-person experience and a digital world in terms of social media and marketing. And I think of that in those ways. Definitely. I mean, that's something that we've been talking about a lot ourselves over here at Visibo is thinking about not maybe these specific examples that you shared, but generally the idea that the real world and the digital world has been blending for some time and there's something going on there in the events world, but we're still trying to put our finger on it. Yeah. And how I'm thinking about this, and this is certainly definitely not the answer because I think it evolves like all the time, is sort of three ways. I think hybrid can be broadly done in two ways. One is You can do what we're we're all doing now and build a digital first experience and an in-person first experience and little bridges to connect them, whether that is live streams of content or digital 
experiences that mirror your in-person experiences. Like one of the things we were playing around with is at Inbound, we don't have a traditional sponsor hall because we have much more of that experience from consumer brands like Coachella and Burning Man. It's very much on the aspirational end for us, but it pulls us in the right direction with our club inbound experience. And what would that look like if we had people that were on in the digital experience that were projected or mapped in some digital form in that in-person experience, for example? So that's what I mean by bridges and that connectivity. I also think the other option is it's sort of more of a fractured experience. So going back to like the Glossier example where there's pop-ups and they're limited in their capacity and size and they go out to the people and they're smaller in that example, a retail store. And then that sort of creates content across social channels, which is more akin to like a traditional marketing campaign. So how would that content be fractured across places? I think the centralized core thing in a digital world is you still need the ability to have video content that's pre-produced. You need people to be able to chat about it and a place to log into. But beyond that, what is that thing that's going to be like that fear of missing out, that compelling moment for everyone to be together? And I think one of the big shifts that we might see as an industry is those smaller experiential moments going out, getting out of big cities like New York or London or LA or San Francisco, bringing that sort of more pop-up mentality that generates buzz and marketing that leads into or out of your large event will be something that we'll start to hear more about. I think event people having that sort of like consumer grade campaign. I think music, when they launch new albums, do this really well, where they have really, really interesting Easter eggs of stuff across the internet for their fans. I think marrying that experiential component with a really buttoned up marketing experience to get the content again, to coalesce everybody and sort of build that buzz and FOMO into and out of an event will be key. I could see things like movies, you know, like a Netflix going on tour and taking their banner TV shows like Stranger Things. I think they had an anniversary today. I saw on Instagram if they went on tour with like two or three up and coming shows and did premieres the way the music industry hosts tours for musicians. What if theaters had limited amount of time on their releases? I think all of these consumer traits is the things that I am thinking about and paying attention to. Like, how does that translate back to a world of a B2B event marketer? What does that look like? How do you drive that sort of like, I've got this audience, I want them to be curious, I want them to be excited, and I want them to feel part of this, and I want them to have a conversation. I think in the past, B2C and B2B have been kept in two separate boxes. But if you think about how we live our life these days, my parents use Zoom just as much as any business people do for connection. And that's not just because they were in the pandemic, it's now a norm. We're on our phone and we order Postmates and then we have a Slack app for our work conversations. So B2B can no longer have a clunky, disjointed experience. It has to be as slick as a B2C, whether that be marketing campaign, pop-up, experience, conversation, inspiration. It has to really live up to those expectations now. The game has been changing for a while, but the pandemic, I think, has completely shifted those expectations with our audiences. It's clear that the consumer, the attendee interest is there. I think we can all agree that. But how do we get like our colleagues and our other executives on board for experiences like this? And I'm asking you, Kim, because Kim, you're a trailblazer. We've already you know, covered a few examples earlier on. What are some ways that you were thinking about or ways that you might suggest to some of our listeners to pitch these very novel experiences to their teams? It's a good question. And I wouldn't say it's easy. You know, we all have different budgets. We all have different scales. We're all at different sizes. I think trying something, I think one of the challenges oftentimes with anything new or anything a little bit more experimental or creative especially in our world, we get a lot of, I get a lot of subjective opinion a lot of the time. So it's being really, really clear on what is your goals and how does this serve the business? It's really back to basics and really clear strategy and alignment. And what are you trying to get out of this? There's a lot of really great ideas. The consumer landscape has changed. There's lots of fun things we could do, but how does that serve the business? One of the things I've been thinking about is, okay, if we had 
an in-person component or pop-up or experience that was in a different city, is that something that we can then create a big sort of like customer experience campaign with? And that would be the goal of that. But also start small. You know, sometimes it's like you've got to try out something to have a proof of concept. And when you're pitching this internally, I think there's, here's the context, here's the goals, and here's the first step. And we're going to like dip our toe in the water before you like try and pitch the entire thing. The landscape is changing and it's hard for people that are not obsessed about this every day to imagine something that doesn't quite exist the way that we're talking about it now. And I do think in B2B organizations in particular, there's often the like, okay, but we've got our checklist of things. We want to do our sales meeting. We want to have our product announcement. We want to have our PR. We want to have our like investor relations. And you know, those are the components and I want to check my box and, and that's where we're at. And it's like, great. We absolutely understand that. And here's a way that we can make that experience the most compelling, cut through, curious, exciting experience that there can be that the world not just wants, but I think kind of needs after the year and a half that we've already been in this pandemic. Sounds great. And I'm just thinking, you know, we really need to do a dedicated masterclass to like building a business case because that's super compelling and that's a very helpful way of thinking about pitching these ideas. We sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, but with either this model or other models, are there any particular ways that you were thinking about engaging sponsors and exhibitors in this new landscape? To be candid, I think this is one of the areas where we learned a lot, where we didn't quite get it fully correct in 2020. One of the things that we really learned is that when we create digital experiences, yes, we want to be honest about like, here's some sponsored content, for example, or here's a sponsor that's there and that's part of it. We also need to have a really good plan on how we as the event are going to drive digital traffic to those sponsorship areas. And so I think taking a step back instead of trying to replicate, we've got a sponsor area and a digital experience, we've got like digital booths or lounges or spaces. What does that look like if we truly integrated it into the event in the way that we're already planning the event? How does that help the sponsor? How can we sit down and partner with the sponsor and be a true consultant and partner to them? We just did a European event in June and we really saw a massive shift from inbound to our Grow EMEA event in June with those learnings. It really isn't rocket science. It's about how do you be honest with your audience to allow them to opt in to hear from those sponsors in a classy way because we've always kept sort of content and sponsorship quite church and states. That was a big change for us to do that in a way that didn't make the audience mad. And I think we really got that right this time in the last month or so. We've looked at different programs from whether it be content to gifting areas to more campaign-driven tactics inside the platform that allows sponsors to bring their expertise in a way that's a very natural fit. I think we can learn a lot, honestly, from the way influencer marketing works these days where certain influencers bring an audience. In this case, we bring the audience as well, but it has to feel organic and trustworthy and aligned with what that brand is for the audience that is there. And at the end of the day, we are experts in our audience and the brand is experts on themselves and their area of expertise. So it requires deep partnership. And I think my advice is teams need to be planning to resource that. It's often a scramble to get all the assets in from a sponsor and just the nuts and bolts of executing on a baseline sponsorship package is a lot of work. So that is the trade-off. If you want to have sponsorship, you need to make sure that you hire the right people and the right resources on your team that has the time and the strategy behind it to have that consultation. With these novel experiences that are coming down the pipe, or with the sponsorship experiences that you've already created with your team, or just you know the events that you've created with your team in the past. Again, even inbound 2019 and the whole entire experience of that was amazing. What sort of skills are you looking for in those other marketing slash event professionals as you think about the future of your team? So my team is in a couple of different groups. We have a production group, which I think in the last year, that was just a well-timed bet. You know, we had transitioned that from an operations, very logistics focus group into what we called production even before COVID ever hit. And our head of production 
comes from NBC Universal, from a lot of film, television world, and really had the chops. We were very, very reliant on this and just really lucky that we had this talented person on board to lead the team last year and beyond to do a lot of the pre-production, to do a lot of filming. We already did the inbound studios. We were used to a lot of pre-production and filming in that way. But to really think about storytelling as part of that production, I think a lot of times, you know, events are hard. There's so much logistics, whether it be food and beverage or venues and lighting and all of those elements that we could write a laundry list about. I think that's the stuff that's table stakes. I think the stuff that people find challenging to stretch to is like, hang on a minute, what story are we telling? How are we telling it? Especially in the era of like essentially TV production, which we really need to be at that quality now. So that's one group. The other group is we have a sponsorship sales team. We have a programming team that deals with everything from Oprah Winfrey as talent to the 300 plus odd breakout speakers. And they need to deeply partner with production to really tell that story. And then we have marketing team as well, which does promotions and really runs promotion direct to our consumers. And any given year, anywhere from 45 to 65% of the registrants of Inbound have no prior affiliation with HubSpot. And that has been very important for us to be able to grow the event without compromising every other marketing team inside of HubSpot's priorities and goals. It's so painful to say, hey, can you actually just like pull your customer campaign this week to send an email to drive tickets to an event? With the pace of growth of HubSpot and the complexities of our products that we've been pushing out, it was a decision that we took early on to have that ability to independently have independent social channels, email, we have a separate HubSpot portal for inbound.com. And that's been key to the success of the growth. So I sort of think of, to answer your question, how would I grow out the team? I look at it holistically as a mini business. Like even Brian Halligan often jokes with me that he's like my lead investor in this business. I've been very fortunate that I have extremely supportive executives that will push on the strategy and buy into a longer term vision. So as I think about hiring those things, I think we're now as a team at the point where we do hire more specialized skill sets. Whereas before when I was building the team, we really hired to project manager skill sets because they needed to be able to multitask and be more generalists. Now we've got a larger production. That's the phase of growth that we're at. Was there a clear tipping point when you went from more project managers to this specialized approach? Yeah, there was. You know, I started this role in 2014. And I was say 2015, honestly, was pretty bumpy. I know personally, I made a lot of mistakes. I was inexperienced. I learned so much. I'm very, very grateful for that experience because I really think it has helped me sort of almost have a crash course into what not to do. And, you know, those decisions like having a separated marketing team at the time came out of that year where it was painful to understand that and set context with other folks. The real turning point was when we sat down and had like a five-year vision conversation. I took about six to eight weeks with our executive team in 2017 to 2018 and said, all right, what does this look like in 2023? As a B2B tech company that's growing like crazy, that's still very reactive, that's, yes, strategic and thoughtful and ambitious and visionary and reactive and startup in nature, which is beautiful. It was a very different conversation. It was like, oh, whoa, five years. We have no idea what we're doing five years. But to force that conversation and to have that rigor and really set that vision, that was the turning point into when those specialized skill sets were. So I would say, Don't just start hiring because it's exhausting. I would say that's where you've got more outsourced partners and when you have more flexibility to change your strategy, when you really want to start beefing up your team internally, you have to know clearly where you're going for a couple of years of a run rate and things will change and things will pivot and there will be a fluidity to that. But to have a clear North Star to anchor around, well, what is we trying to achieve here? Or what's the point for the business? What's the goals and who does this serve is just really important. That's great to hear. And I think essential right now, especially as so many event teams are rethinking the way that they're structured, the way that they're working with other teams within their organizations, and as they're thinking about what comes next. With that specific example that you mentioned, were there any specific milestones in terms of painting that vision four or five years down the line or three years down the line, very far down the road for a growing tech company? But were there any specific milestones that like stuck or that you were really shooting for in terms, you know, around headcount or specific types of events or say registration goals? 
Yeah, all of the above. I think when you pull together a plan like that, you have to read the tea leaves a little bit for like, what's the norm in your organization? At HubSpot, one of the things that we're actually really good about is metrics and data. And that was a really grounding point for me in those conversations, because like I said before, subjective opinions on any type of creative endeavor or work is always going to exist. And, you know, there's a lot of debate sometimes about like what it should be or could be. At the end of the day, we do a lot of debrief on inbound. We do surveys as most folks do. We look at everything from the number of scans into a session room, the amount of time people interact with content, what was trending topics. We look at everything from Google trends to on the HubSpot side, like the data on the HubSpot blog and what topics and content is resonating and all of those things. And there is definitely an art and a science approach, but I think the key insight is the science part of it is what resonates with our leadership team and really approaching it from that perspective and having key milestones, like you said, around registration and also the economics of the event. We have not historically tracked ROI in a way that it was the leading goal. It's certainly always been part of the conversation. We don't want to lose money on this event, but it has been a community-driven play. It's about allowing this group of professionals who are pioneers in a way of doing business that is an inbound way of doing business, which is helpful, consultative, inspiring, thoughtful, to meet once a year, have a conversation about what's the next 12 months of this community and this movement look like, and have that social proof that not only are they doing something that works, but it's the right thing and it's something they get excited about and they take ownership over, is really what our North Star has been. We have also looked at Again, like how does that serve HubSpot? It serves it because we are the host of this way of doing business upon our products and services happen to be able to offer you a solution to do that. We have been able to be less pushy on our sales side of things, which resonates really well with our audience. So just taking that scientific route of data really matters. One of the things we looked at was what are we investing in the event What are we spending? How is that changing over the years? And I think the drag the spreadsheet exercise was very helpful. One of the things that always helps me in strategy planning is to take a very extreme point of view or extreme data point as a projection, because it helps really get people's reaction to see, okay, here's where this could potentially go. And let's react. Is that a good or bad thing? And so one of the things that we discovered is that as the event was growing, yes, we were going revenue on the ticket sales but it wasn't accelerating at the rate that we wanted. And the company was essentially still paying for about 45% of the cost of the event. And that was okay. We were not trying to make money on ticket sales and revenue. That was not the business model for this event. You know, there's certain free ticket types for certain groups inside of HubSpot that we care about in some ways sparingly. So We sort of said, all right, what does it look like if we get to 2023 and we have this many registrants and we continue to grow and the cost still is at that 45%, like what does that look like? And those numbers were really high. So that was a really good conversation to say, all right, well, if we wanted to offset that, part of what we can do is one, we can control the cost and two, we can increase the revenue. And so controlling the cost is really about we're an industry event. We're not a user conference. We are not here to sell and push products. We're not trying to be any way deceitful about it. We do absolutely proudly have HubSpot product announcements, PR, HubSpot Academy track that educates people, which are really popular at the event, but we're very honest in calling those things out. The broad part of inbound in person in particular is very much that community play, trying to make sure everyone has that inspiration, education, and connection. And it's always been our North Star. But for example, if you're doing a user conference versus an industry event where people are coming and they know that the expectation is that they're going to be sold to all day long, they're going to hear from a customer that says, this product's amazing, you should just buy it. They're not really learning anything. It's not very inspiring. It's not providing great connection because there's nothing inspiring for them to coalesce around. If I was that person attending it, I'd be like, well, I'm already paying you for my software. I'm going to this place. Yeah, I'll meet some people. But what am I really learning? What is in this for me? It seems more of like a sort of showcase for you. So I expect like I want my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I want hospitality. I want to go to the Red Sox game. I want these things. And that's sort of the industry standard that had been set, unfortunately, by a lot of other big events, which if their goals are different, that's perfect for them. No judgment. But that's not what we were trying to achieve. HubSpot is remarkable. We are trying to 
be pioneers in this industry and serve this industry as a company. And for example, when we cut the free coffee bill at Inbound, it saved $600,000 off of the budget. So it's a very different thing if you can level up and choose where you want to shine and be exemplary. I think people are not mad about having to pay for a cup of coffee because you're trying really hard to bring a level of production and excitement and conversation where they get something out of it for their genuine professional development. On the other hand, we looked at scaling revenues. Yes, we've got ticket sales, but the big area of opportunity was sponsor sales. And like I said, our goal is not to make a profit on inbound. It's just to not bankrupt HubSpot in the process of hosting this and continuing to grow and serving the community. So when we looked at sponsorship, we wanted to diversify out and not just have B2B, but also have B2C sponsors. Because one, they bring a level of excitement to the audience that they find curious and up-leveled and just amazing, as well as some of those amazing B2B partners. We worked with Porsche, for example, who created a vision booth and really worked on how does an individual see themselves in their future career as leaders. And that wouldn't normally be a brand that you would associate with a B2B tech event, but they found an amazing audience in what we had built and they helped us create an experience that wasn't necessarily just coming from us and our centralized budget. So bringing in those sponsors that could create experiences as well as be a sponsor and take up space was really important. So again, that consultative approach, and that has worked really well in terms of scaling those revenues. So I think an event of our size is a business by itself. So when I say I don't feel like an event professional, I often feel like a professional that is just trying to run a business and it's more of like a GM who loves production, who loves storytelling, who understands the audience is really incredibly special and the inbound audience is just very engaged and they give us a lot of feedback. And that can be really hard because it's overwhelming, but it is absolutely the thing that has helped us grow and be successful. I know we are running out of time. So just going to ask you three more quick questions. First off, who is someone you look up to in events, marketing, or business in general? I really look up to those entrepreneurs like Emily Weiss from Glossier, who's been able to forge a path and create a space where there wasn't one exactly like that before. I also follow people from entertainment. Like we had Bozma St. John, who's a CMO at Netflix at Inbound a couple of years ago when she was formerly at Uber. And she's just an incredibly gracious and kind human when you meet her, but just someone who's nailed it on like being authentic and her own personal brand and aligning herself and her passions with her career. There's so many inspiring people, whether you're telling a story, serving an audience, doing production, being an entrepreneur, you can garner insight and inspiration from. I also like read a lot of business books, everything from Jim Collins to Brene Brown has really had an impact on how I think about managing my team and leading my team and growing and and having the team be owned by all of us and having a very open dialogue on what's working and what's not over the years, I think has, has served us really well. The one thing I'm the most proud of is actually my team. They are badass and they are an incredibly hardworking group of people who bring new ideas and immense passion to their job every day. Love it. And on another note, I know earlier you mentioned that and growing out the inbound brand, that there certainly were some lessons learned along the way. You know, one question I'd like to ask our guest is if you could give an earlier version of yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? I think it would be to constantly sense check what everybody else knows. I think in the earlier part of my career, I you know, would have gotten direction from really senior people above me and sort of took it as an assumption that everyone else understood that that was the goal as well. And that's not always the case. I think setting context for everyone else and first of all, trying to understand where they are to align that context with them. So I constantly ask people, what does success look like for you by the end of the year or by the end of next year? What are your goals? What are you working on? To be really curious about what other people are working on and what makes them tick is just huge. And I also think one of the beauties of working in events is, you know, and I really do miss the in-person component, I have to say. And even though we've absolutely had an amazing team spirit on digital as well, 
is when you're on set, whether it's filming or on site at a live event, you go through everything with your team. You go through the emotions, you go through achievements, you go through the problems and the challenges. And I think being so conscious as a leader of my energy and what I give out comes back is so true. Like if you approach it with a lot of gratitude, as graceful as you can, being really humble, asking questions, getting curious, don't make assumptions and just being happy and positive and checking in, is everybody okay? As a default way to operate is incredibly powerful because you can feel those vibrations come really corny sometimes, but it it really works. And I'm just really, really grateful that my team and I have grown up together in that way of thinking. And we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, how is everybody doing? Does anybody need support? We're in this together. And that is so important to proactively set that intention before going through a strategy planning cycle, an event, a recording, whatever it is to really want to have a positive energy in your environment is so powerful. It's resonating with me quite a bit. Well, Thank you for sharing. And the final question is, how can folks keep up with you and the Inbound team? So check out Inbound.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Inbound. And with me, you can always connect with me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. All right, Kim. Thank you so much for taking your time to chat with us today. Thanks, Brandon, for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Kim for joining us. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoy listening to In Person, there are several ways that you can show your support. Subscribe, rate, leave us a review, and share the show with your colleagues and friends. If you'd like to share your feedback, please drop us a line at in-person at bizbo.com. You can also find full transcripts of the show along with key takeaways at inpersonpodcast.com. In Person is a production of Bizbo. Today's episode was hosted by Brandon Raffleson, co-produced by Brandon and myself, and edited by Brian Peek. Music by Ian O'Hara. Until next time, I'm Rachel Rappaport. Thanks for tuning in.